I'm Jewel Manville, and this is Last Best Stories. In this episode, episode four of our podcast, we're sort of playing around with the idea of people, men specifically, who are sort of the same, but pretty different. Oh my God, did you see Becky last night? So this guy, Jacob Cronin, he and his younger brother, Ben, are both gay, both grew up in the same Christian household in Helena, Montana. But Jacob, he got sent to conversion therapy. That's where a counselor tries to convince a gay person he's straight. And Ben didn't have to go. They're going to talk about that. And there's a lot going on there. And then, because why not, I'm bringing you war stories. Real war stories. It's part of a national oral history project to document what combat is really like from the people who were there. We'll hear from a younger Marine. My name is Mike Warner. Who served in Iraq. And an older one. Uh, My name is Roger Cox. Who went to Vietnam. What they went through and what they have to say about it, I can't even express to you how much you need to hear it. And I don't mean it in a take your medicine kind of way, be a patriot and all of that. That's not what this is about. It's about war being a very human experience. Complex, emotional, tragic, boring, tough. And here's the lucky thing. We have a couple of humans right here. Two veterans living in western Montana willing to talk really honestly about it. But first up, conversion. It's a story reported by Sherry Tressler, who's in her last semester at the University of Montana. Sherry met Jacob when they were both in the UM Grizzly Marching Band. He's a music education major, she's in journalism. Now, they're roommates. Their friendship definitely helped when Sherry decided she needed to get Jacob and his brother to record their coming out stories. My name is Jacob Cronin. When I came home that day, my mom was already home, and she was outside, and I was, like, beating out of my chest. Just, like, these thoughts running through my mind of, like, what is she going to think? What is she going to do? Like, I was outside, and I was like, I need to tell you something. And she's like, what? And I was like, I am gay. She just, she didn't say anything at first. She just kind of had, like, the most puzzled look on her face, but she's like, you're kidding. And I was like, no, and... It honestly looked like I had killed her or something. She was just shocked. I was like, no, I actually am. It wasn't the reaction I was hoping for at all. My name is Benjamin Cronin. So my older brother came out, I'd say when I was in about 8th grade, 7th grade, and I saw the reaction that my parents had to that, and they like sent him to counseling. We had meetings twice a week in the basement of the church that I went to every Sunday since I was a little kid. We, like, looked in the Bible of, like, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, of course, that shit freaked me out. His interpretation was there was a lot of sin and homosexuality. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He flattened them because there were gay people living in it. I guess after seeing how they treated him and me and my confusion with my sexuality, I didn't know. I honestly am not kidding. I was an 18-year-old in Helena, Montana, raised in a church, did not understand what being gay actually was. I was in therapy for about a year. He would tell me that everyone would hate me, that I would have no friends. 
if I continued to be gay, my life would be worse. I watched my brother go through a lot with what my parents forced him to do. Like, and I mean, I saw how he was emotionally suppressed. He was depressed. I tried to commit suicide. I was in the bathroom. I had a knife. And I cut my left wrist. And before I did anything else, I stopped. I remember these Tupac lyrics. At the mansion. Because Tupac and the internet were my only friends at that time. And I remember Tupac saying, I contemplated suicide, but when I held that knife, all I could see was my mama's eyes. And that shit is true. That is real. Like the situation my parents put him in forced him to not be able to feel comfortable being himself. He was conditioned to feel that being gay was morally and sinfully wrong. Um, he told me I would keep trying to kill myself. He's like, it's because you're gay that you tried to kill yourself. It scared me, but I didn't understand who I was. Gay was never a thing that was really talked about, aside from the fact that it was wrong. Like, I didn't know what it was, really. Eventually lied my way out of therapy by telling them I was straight. My friends were downstairs in my house and my mom was upstairs and I went upstairs to talk to her. And she just out of nowhere asked me if I was gay. I said, yeah. Seeing what Jacob went through didn't stop me from coming out. My own development and discovery of who I was stopped me from coming out. Because it took me a lot longer than it took him. I was 16. I got out of therapy at 16. I was almost 17. I mean, we were both raised like that. My parents still think it's a choice. So they think, you know, sending him to counseling or, you know, trying to pray the gay away that somehow him and I are miraculously going to be heterosexual one day. I flat out, I just told him I didn't have feelings for men anymore and that I thought women were attractive and that I wanted to marry a woman and have children and live the American dream, the straight dream. My parents completely bought it for about three months and then they decided not to do anything. I think I just got bad at hiding it. There were like slip ups where I would say something. Oh my God, did you see Becky last night? <laughs> You'd think I went to church with my parents, both Jacob and I did, for 18 years of our life. You know, have been raised, taught that being gay is a sin, it's wrong, you know, you're going to be condemned to hell, it goes against everything. I mean, if my parents honestly think it's a choice, why would they think I would choose this? Jacob and Ben were both at the University of Montana when producer Sherry Trussler recorded them. Jacob will graduate in May. Ben recently moved to Portland. Sherry wanted to talk on tape to their mom, too. But it's all pretty sensitive, and that wasn't going to happen. Sometimes, I guess, you just have to know how far you can push when you want a story, and when to let it be. That comes into play with our next set of stories. For the past couple of years, I've asked my students to be a part of the Veterans History Project, a big oral history archive at the Folklife Center in Washington, D.C., Its purpose is to record soldiers, as many as possible, who've served in wars, in their own words, with their own voices. We have stories from 21 veterans, most of them living in and around western Montana, at the Public Radio Exchange, or PRX.org. 
It's a series on there called Combat Stories, Vets on War and Why They Went. Here are two of my favorites. First up, Mike Warner. And the first thing Mike Warner will tell you is he's an orphan. He lost his parents and his grandparents when he was young, and he ended up as a teenager in Corvallis, where he graduated high school. He turned 18 in basic training and 21 in Iraq, where he served with the U.S. Marine Corps, Bravo Company, second tanks out of Camp Lejeune. His friends, his tank crew, they became his family. My buddy, he always refers to me as the Grim Reaper of Death. We leveled everything from buildings to cars. Tanks aren't pretty. They're not meant to do pretty things. When a tank rolls into the battlefield, we are there to destroy things. That's our job. We were clearing Karma. I have no idea where we were at in Karma, to be honest with you. And these two little kids started poking their head up over the wall at me. They waved at me, and I waved back. And then they came out with a whiteboard, like a marker whiteboard. First, they wrote a couple of things in Arabic, and then they started writing in English. And it was stupid stuff like hello, or and they misspelled hello. I think the funny one that I used to laugh about is, do you like Michael Jackson? They asked me if we had any food. And so I grabbed these two shitty MREs that we weren't going to eat, and I hopped off the tank and ran to the store of this building. This woman opens the door, and I see the two kids, and I hand them these MREs. When I ran back to my tank, the two children, their parents had been killed by insurgents in Baghdad, and the woman that opened the door was their aunt. That small gift of kindness, just handing them two MREs and talking to them, they became informants. And so, yeah, I don't know how many lives were saved from just handing them two MREs. I mean, I could open that door, and there could have been a suicide bar or someone holding a rifle there. I'm not going to shoot a woman and children. You can take five seconds to identify if that person has a rifle, if they're a woman or a child. It saves lives, innocent lives. Yes, there are situations, even in my military history, I shot women and children. I'm sorry. It happens. It's a war zone. How do you explain two years of your life that you really, that no one can really relate to? Like, we train people in society through societal norms to not kill people, to not hurt people, to be kind to each other. And then we take... 1% of our population, and we train them to, to hurt people very badly, to kill people. And you expect these people to come back home and just literally flip a light switch and be okay? No, it doesn't happen like that. And you sit there in a room with the counselors and, well, how does that make you feel? What did you feel? A recoil of my rifle. What do you think? Mike Warner's story was recorded and produced by Christopher Allen and Sergio Gonzalez in 2013. Mike, by the way, has made working with vets his career. He's currently on staff at the Valley Veterans Service Center in Hamilton. Roger Cox is a Marine who left Vietnam in the fall of 1967. He'd been wounded three times. He went back to where he was when he left, the University of Washington, and eventually ended up in Montana after working 14 seasons as a smoke jumper out of Missoula. That was a long time ago. Roger's 70 now. He has a Ph.D., and he's a financial advisor living in Frenchtown. Still, he remembers exactly what it was like to be a college kid landing in Vietnam. We flew into Dong Ha in the middle of the night. Uh, The temperature was 
well over 90 degrees. You could see the streaks of tracers going from the air to the ground. And there'd be one or two tracers go up. And then this blast going down. And the tracers on the ground didn't come up anymore. But that was my first vision of Vietnam, really. And then we walked into a field and laid down. I mean, that was... That was how we spent the first night, dug a foxhole and laid down. We stayed there two nights, and then the third night, we got hit by artillery, and we had over 30 killed right there. I mean, it's, the war comes to you very quickly. I volunteered for Point after two or three weeks in Vietnam. Well, Point Man is the first man down the trail, first man up the hill, and I decided that it kept me really busy. It kept me more involved. And I didn't worry as much, or I didn't think as much about how miserable I was. I mean, when you are the first guy through, you set the pace. You choose the route. My concerns were, of course, booby traps, uh, stepping on a mine or hitting a tripwire. And then your next concern is somebody laying in the trail down the way and been killing you. Uh, there's lots of bad stories about how long guys stay alive at Point. I was fortunate a number of times. I was replaced at Point on three different occasions where immediately after I was replaced, the Point man was killed. So it, reality was always right there in front of you. There were nights when, you know, when it's absolutely black, and it's hot. You can't tell blood from sweat. And so often, when you had to deal with blood, you also were under fire, you're under attack, so you really cannot work on your friend who's bleeding to death beside you. You just deal with it, keep going. And you can worry about the emotions 20 years from now. So, uh, we would feel bad maybe after the fact. You'd be looking around and there's seven of you. There used to be 14. You know, what happened to, do you think he made it? And we wouldn't know sometimes for, sometimes for years. Of the guys that I served with, there's only three or four came home. All the rest were killed. So in other words, I don't really, keep track of anybody. Basically, there is a code that we have to live. Those of us who returned, we have an obligation to those who didn't to live our life in full. And you have to be a better person than you would have been just because of that obligation. Roger Cox's story was recorded and produced by Emily Proctor in fall 2014. After they met for this interview, Roger sent Emily a Christmas card because he's that kind of guy. You've been listening to Last Best Stories, a podcast featuring features only mostly unique to Montana. If you like us, why not hop over to iTunes and rate us? The more ratings we get, the easier it is for people to find us. You can also listen at Stitcher, which is an app made for podcasts. 
and at our website, of course, lastbeststories.org. I'm Jewel Banville. Thanks for giving us some of your time. It's a big deal. Thank you.